There's a chance for Mule and Burroughs. They score! And the Mules score! Scores! Three in a row for the Mules! Duke has to put it up at the buzzer! It's good! And the Mules win it! Coming to you from Allentown, Pennsylvania, welcome to the Mule and Burroughs Mules Podcast. Each episode, we'll talk to the coaches, staff, athletes, and alumni who make up the Muhlenberg Athletics family and are proud to call themselves Mules. And our guest this week is Sarah Niebler, a 2004 graduate of Muhlenberg College, where she was a member of two Centennial Conference champion women's tennis teams. Since 2013, Sarah has been a professor of political science at Dickinson College, specializing in American politics, specifically campaigns and elections, political behavior, and public opinion. Her scholarly work has been published in the American Journal of Political Science, Legislative Studies Quarterly, Political Communication and the Journal of Public Economics, among others, and her research and analysis has been featured on NPR's Hidden Brain. She recently was a guest on ABC 27 in Harrisburg to break down the first presidential debate. Welcome to the Muhlenberg Mules podcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me. As, as we mentioned, you're a, a professor at Dickinson, and, and one of the classes you're teaching this semester is a senior seminar on campaigns and elections, and w- what a time to be teaching a, a, a course like that. So um, do, you, do you have a, a syllabus or a course plan for that, or do you just wake up every morning, look at the news, and say, oh, I, I guess that's what we're going to talk about today? No, we, we have a plan, but I admit that it. it changes a little bit here and there. Um, so the, the course, like you said, the senior seminar and campaigns and elections, I've been lucky enough to be able to teach that course every fall of an even year since I've been at Dickinson. So I, I got to Dickinson in summer of 2013. So I taught it in 14, 16, 18, and now fall 2020. So two presidential election years and two midterm years. And it's it's a really fun class to take. It's mostly seniors. We do sometimes have a couple of juniors in the class. And it's it's a class where we have sort of one topic a week. So, you know, we talk about media, which is what we're discussing later this afternoon. We spend a week on polling. We spend a week on presidential primaries, presidential general elections, congressional elections, the electoral college, all of those kinds of things. So within each topic, there's certainly a lot of space for talking about current events. A couple of weeks ago, we spent the first 45 minutes or so of the of the seminar just talking about the first presidential debate which had happened the night before so there's certainly room to talk about current events but we do have to have a little bit of a plan to to structure the class a bit yeah this is uh this is very interesting times obviously obviously anytime you're doing this during the middle of a presidential election it, it has to be a a little bit more fun and interesting. Maybe sometimes the midterm elections are, are a little less exciting but you know particularly this presidential election is it, it seems like this is, uh, we hear the word unprecedented a lot. Is it true that we're seeing things this year that are unprecedented, that are a little bit weird and out of the norm? Or, or is that true? Or does it just seem that way? That's a really tough question to answer. I, I think it's certainly Trump is an unconventional candidate. There's just no getting around that, right? His campaign style is different than we've seen before. His willingness to engage with media is different than we've seen before. Um, his use of social media, specifically Twitter, is different than we've seen before. Right? So there are certainly aspects of his campaign style that are, you know, I think, fundamentally different than other candidates and then, than other folks we've seen before. I think whether that means that the entire campaign infrastructure and the entire campaign environment is fundamentally different is a little bit more of an open question. But I certainly think, you know, looking around this year, 
throwing a, a global pandemic in on top of of a presidential election year certainly adds to it, right? We certainly are spending much more time talking about election administration and how elections actually get implemented by state and local officials than I ever imagined spending time talking about before, right? So the the kind of esoteric or relatively esoteric conversations about vote by mail and secrecy envelopes and, you know, the order in which ballots are counted, you know, if if they're counted in absentee form first or the in-person first and all of that kind of nuanced things, all of those nuanced things are not things we often spend a lot of time talking about in elections but or in campaign seasons, but these are things that I found myself explaining to colleagues, to students, to my parents, to <laughs> everybody who's interested in this year because there's just so much discussion about it. And there, there's frankly a lot of confusion about how the system works. And you know, so in, in a good light, you know, we're not taking this stuff for granted anymore and we're People are more engaged and they're thinking about how these processes work. On the other hand, it can feel really overwhelming for people on a, on a day-to-day basis, I think. So your, uh, your seminar meets on, on Wednesdays then? We do, yeah. It's a, so most of the senior seminars at Dickinson are once a week for a three-hour block. Um, because we are entirely remote this semester, I promised my students at the beginning of the semester that I would never make them sit on Zoom for a solid three hours in a row. So we've shortened it and we've done a, you know, some more out-of-class out activities. But I meet Wednesday afternoons from 1.30 to 3.30-ish, I guess, is, is our normal meeting time. So you'll be meeting on Wednesday, November 4th, huh? the day after we, the... we plan anything specific for class all all that my syllabus says for that day is election debrief and i have no idea what we're going to talk about because i I mean frankly i don't have any idea if the election will be decided by that point right one of the things we're talking about right now is that results might take some time to come in particularly in pennsylvania which if they're slow to come in in pennsylvania might mean that they're slow to come in in other states, and we may not know the winner. So I, like I said, I just have election debrief, and it's it's a giant question mark right now what we'll talk about that day. Well, it will be sure to be interesting, even though you're not sure what you're going to talk about. Do you sense that the uh, the students in your class have a sense of everything that's on the kind of on the table with this presidential election, maybe compared to the 2016 election, which was a little different? I do. I mean, I, I have spent, my students are probably tired of me talking about how to vote, um, because one of the other things I've been involved in on campus is a group called Dickinson Votes, which just works, it's a group of students, faculty, and staff that just works to try to make sure students have all the information they need to participate in the election. And it's, you know, it's nonpartisan, so it's we're just trying to provide information and, and knowledge about how to participate in the process. And so I think my students are probably tired of me asking them at the beginning of every class, Hey, do you have all the information you need to know how to vote? Do you have any questions about how to vote? I think they're probably rolling their eyes at me every time I ask those questions right now. But I, but I do think that engagement is high. I mean, I think one one thing I will say is, and I tell my students this all the time, is that students in political science classes are not a representation of all college students, though, and certainly not of all eighteen to twenty four year olds. So even if they are all engaged and enthusiastic about participating, that doesn't mean that 
everybody is. And so I think that's an important piece to remember. So I'm going to get, you know, in my classes, especially in a senior seminar on campaigns and elections, I'm going to get the students that are most intrinsically interested in the system already. I wanted to talk about the polarization class you teach. Are you teaching that in the spring? (laughs) I saw you taught that in spring 19. I did teach a polarization and American politics class in spring 2019. I'm not slated to teach it this coming spring. This coming spring, I'm supposed to teach a public opinion and survey research class, okay. which will be its own, its own interesting take. The polarization class was interesting. It, was a, it ended up being a, a little bit of a smaller class than I thought it might be. So we really ran it like a seminar, and it was, it was a lot of fun. We talked about causes of polarization. Then we talked about some of the consequences of polarization, and then we talked about, we tried to spend some time talking about solutions, because I think one of the things that folks are frustrated about is that we can kind of diagnose a lot of the challenges and problems that we see in American politics, but we don't have solutions. And I think some of that's because the system is just so complicated, right? You can't make one change, one small change especially, isn't going to fix all of the ills that people see with the with the political process. But I think to spend some time thinking about smaller changes, both individually and systemically, that we can work toward, I think is an important thing, particularly for students who are setting out, trying to figure out what area they want to get into after, after school is over, right? Are they going into the law? Are they going into public policy, government? Do they want to run for office? Right, trying to help folks think about, okay, all of these areas have solutions, or you can work towards solutions in any of those areas. It's just about what matches with your strengths and what you're interested in pursuing. Yeah, so Muhlenberg sponsors, uh, Muhlenberg also has Berg votes, which I guess is similar to Dickinson votes. And, I'm sure. And Muhlenberg is sponsoring an election series. Uh, and earlier this week, there was a webinar with Professor Madonna, who runs the Franklin and Marshall polling place. And he, he talked about polarizations, and, and one of the interesting facts that he brought up is in, uh, in the most recent Gallup poll, the presidential job approval rating for Trump among Republicans was 92%, and among Democrats was 5%. And, yep. and, and, and I look back a little bit, and, and on Obama's last day in office, his approval rating among Democrats was 86%, and among Republicans was 14%, which is not as wide a gap as Trump's, but still a a really wide gap. And then if you go further and further back, you'll see that obviously presidents are supported highly by members of their party, but departing presidents were usually around the 30 or 40 percent mark from people who identified with the other party. So it it certainly does appear as polarization is is on the rise and and on the increase in, in this country. Yeah, that's certainly one way to measure it and a, and a pretty common way of, of measuring it and understanding it. I always try and look for the silver lining, which again, probably drives my students crazy a little bit, but I'm sort of an inherently an optimistic person. And the, the silver lining to that is that the part, it's never been easier in American politics to tell the difference between the parties. And that actually can be a good thing because it makes it easier for voters to figure out who they support. <laughs> so again, Silver lining, maybe nobody wants to hear that, but I do think there's there's one small positive to the, the real big differences that we see with respect to Democrats and Republicans right now. Again, it just makes it easier for people to say, oh, this is the person I support, and not just at the presidential level. That's That's always been relatively easy for people because there's a ton of media coverage about it. People talk about it, but some of the more the down-ballot races where the candidates are a little bit less well-known, 
political party is providing information about those elections, too. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. What, what, what do you think uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, what's what's caused that and that you talked about that in your in, in, in your class? What do you think? Do you, do you think it's the it, it, it's just the media, the social media where, where information is just so much more freely available? Do you think that plays a role? I think there there's not one thing that causes it again, right? Because there's not one thing that we can do to, to solve polarization. So there's also not just one thing that's responsible. I think, yeah, part of it's the 24 hour news cycle, part of it's social media, part of it dates back to the Voting Rights Act and some of the, the more clear positions that the political part clear and divergent positions that political parties took on race politics starting as as early as the 60s um certainly differences go back farther than that but that's kind of the more the argument is that that the kind of more modern version of racial politics in the u.s started you know became a little bit more clear in the late 60s so yeah you mentioned that you're you're optimistic um can can the the country continue to be this polarized is that you said there was a silver lining but is that do you think that's healthy for the country to be so polarized? I think there's a difference between polarization and civility. And I, I don't love the word civility, but I think it's unfortunately sort of one of the better words we have. But I think there's there's a difference between polarization and having two parties that believe fundamentally different things and have different views about policy. But I think that's different than some of what's going on now which is you know highly inflammatory rhetoric that demeans entire groups of people <laughs> and views them as less than. And I think, again, that's fundamentally different. So I'm not so worried about two political parties that have drastically different policies with respect to taxes or social safety net benefits or things like that. What I'm worried about is two different parties that have fundamentally different views on the, the positions of black and brown people in the United States or LGBTQ people in the U.S. and and abroad. And so I think that's where the the concern for me is in that area of politics, not so much in the public policy and kind of tax welfare policy. I think we can always, reasonable people can disagree on those kinds of policies. I, I don't think reasonable people can disagree about whether everyone deserves to vote or whether everyone deserves to, you know, be free from police violence and things like that. So just talking about your uh, background a little bit, of course, you uh, uh, attended Muhlenberg. Uh, you were one of the first people to work in Muhlenberg's Institute of Public Opinion, which uh, we have to have to put in a plug for them. Um, I will always plug the Institute of Public Opinion. That's I, I still see Chris Boric relatively regularly. Um, one of the real joys of having gotten a job at Dickinson is to be able to be back in Pennsylvania and get the opportunity to work with, I can't bring myself to call him Chris, but to work with Dr. Boric on, on research projects now as a colleague, as opposed to an employee or one of his student workers. But yeah, Chris Boric came to Muhlenberg at the same time that I started, or roughly the same time I started. So he taught my first year seminar about democracy, I believe. And then uh, I ended up starting to work for him, I think my sophomore year, so I started as a phone caller in the Institute and then worked my way up to supervisor. And then after I graduated, I actually stayed on for another year after that. I did a master's program at Lehigh and worked for, for Dr. Boric as the assistant director of the Polling Institute. And I think I was the first person to stay on for the fifth year and, and kind of have that partnership with the Lehigh program. But the experience I got there 
not just as a phone caller, but then in that kind of supervisory capacity. And then as the assistant director, I helped write surveys. I helped write press releases for results of surveys. At that point, I did not know that I would go on to do a PhD in political science, but looking back on it from you know, a number of years later, it's really easy for me to see that that experience in the polling institute 100% laid the groundwork for me to go into the career that I'm in now. And I, I couldn't have done any of that without Dr. Bork's support in the moment, but also ongoing. The other cool part is I've, I've actually gotten a chance to work with other Muhlenberg faculty since I've been a faculty member. I recently published a piece with Lanethia Matthew Schultz about Pennsylvania politics. In fact, uh, we had put some questions on an exit poll that Muhlenberg students and Dickinson students, as well as some students from the western part of the state affiliated with uh, Chatham College and the University of Pittsburgh, all partnered up to do an exit poll in 2016 and 2018, and Lenethi and I were able to use the results from that to, to publish a piece about women in politics in Pennsylvania. It's been really, it's been a, a tremendous just kind of turn of events to be able to, to have that experience of working with both of them, not just as a student, but as, again, now as a colleague. Once a mule, always a mule, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's what a liberal arts education is all about, right? Is, uh, is, is finding where your interest lies and finding where your passion lies. And it, it looks like with the, uh, the help of, of Dr. Bork, you were, you were able to do that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I also loved the other courses and things I took at Muhlenberg. I was also a philosophy major while I was at Muhlenberg, and I, I think about that regularly, too, and the, the faculty I had in, in those classes. Uh, Dr. Schlecht, I know, is still, I think he's retired now, but I know he's still around the college, which is, is exciting. I saw him a couple of years ago when I came up, actually, to go to a, a Muhlenberg women's tennis match. Dr. Schlecht had walked over from his house, so I got to catch up with him a few years ago, which was a real joy as well. You know, you were on the, the ground floor there with the Institute, and it's still going strong, and have to mention here that the Muhlenberg College Institute of Public Opinion earned an A-plus in 538's most recent pollster ratings, one of only six in the nation to do so. So that's, that's, great. That, that's great for you that you were, you were yeah. uh, helped that get, get that off the ground, and it, it's still going strong to these days. That makes me happy. I always like hearing about what it's, what's the folks working on it, and I enjoy seeing the press releases when, when they put out a new poll. and. Uh, appreciate the quality of the work now as as a consumer of that information as as le and less of a, a producer of that information That's right. terrific right and of course you mentioned coming back for a tennis match and this is the Muhlenberg Mules podcast we haven't discussed yeah. any sports things <laughs> yet but of of course you had a an outstanding tennis career at, at Muhlenberg a part of two centennial conference championship teams and and, and we talked with you in the spring uh, for an article on the Muhlenberg website about that 2014, your senior year, that, that won the Centennial Conference Championship. And, and one of the things you talked about was how, you know, some, some of the teams we talked to, the players say, well, we all hung out together. We were together all the time. But that was not the case with the women's tennis team. You, you, you all had different interests on campus. We did. Yeah. And I think I think it made us stronger for it. You know, we were able to come together and work as a team. And like you said, have have a high degree of success on the court. And I still I still I'm not in touch with a lot of the, the women on the team, although a couple of years ago when Coach Andrews retired from Muhlenberg, there were some folks that hosted, I guess it was mostly the current players and the alumni office maybe hosted a, a retirement gathering for her at one of the last home matches that she coached. And a handful of us came up, a handful of us from my era came up. It was actually very cool. There were 
different students from probably sort of three distinct eras of the women's tennis program at Muhlenberg. There were current students and recently graduated alum. And then there were a group of us from the mid-2000s range. So at that event, I ended up seeing Mackenzie Park. I saw Amy Schmidt and Pam Kimmelman, who I believe have different last names now, some of them, but those were the names when I was there. So I got to see them and we hung out for the duration of the match and we're able to congratulate Coach Andrews on her incredibly successful career at Muhlenberg. The other group of alums that came back to celebrate her were actually alumni from the mid-80s, which is when Coach Andrews coached, I believe it was in the MAC conference, and had also won a couple of championships at that at that point. So it was really cool to have alums spread across you know, 30 plus years and, and celebrate and honor Coach Andrews and, like I said, her, her tremendous career at Muhlenberg. I can say without a doubt that had she not been the, the coach, I don't know that I would have played my entire four years. The first year I was on campus, she took a year or two away and, and worked with the cross-country team and then ultimately came back to the women's tennis team. And, and like I said, I think without her coming back to the women's tennis team, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have stayed with it. So just on a topic of uh, you know people from kind of different interests coming together to, to work together for a common goal, maybe... Maybe maybe there's, there's an a, analogy for politics in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. the 2004 uh, Muhlenberg women's tennis team uh, can offer some lessons for uh, for politicians <laughs> these days, huh? I do think. I mean, one of the solutions that we talk about in the polarization class, and it, it almost feels a little bit trite because, again, and I, I don't want to suggest that people who are oppressed by other people have a responsibility to spend time with their oppressors. I want to be really clear about that. But I do think there is there's value to people who can and who are in positions where they can, you know, interact with people who have different beliefs than them. I think that is one of the, the possible ways of overcoming some of the polarization. Again, there are certainly limits to that. And I would never, ever suggest that that folks who are in marginalized positions have the burden of doing that work. But for those of us who are in less marginalized positions, I think there can be value in us trying to understand where people are coming from that have where people who have very different views than us are coming from, I guess. All right. Uh, Sarah Niebler, we've been talking about um, a little bit about politics and, and a little bit about tennis and, and your how it all started for you at, at Muhlenberg College. And we like to end all our podcasts with some getting to know you type questions. So uh, here we go. What What is your favorite quote? So I, I'm, I'm bad at quotes. So I, I'm not somebody that's got a lot of kind of those off the top of my head, but I do certainly like the the Gandhi quote that talks about being the change that you want to see in the world. And I think that's something that I've always tried to live by. If I can't always control the systems at play, I can at least try to control how I respond to certain situations. So we'll go with that. All right. And, and you know, obviously very relevant in, in 2020 in the, in the presidential election year with the election less than a month away where, where people have, uh, they do have the ability at least to do what they can to, to help affect change if they're not satisfied with things. That's right. Absolutely. If you weren't a professor, what would you be doing? <laughs> I always enjoyed some aspect, the aspects of government. I think that was one of the things I really discovered at Muhlenberg. So I would probably be in some sort of government position. Maybe it would be more of a city planner or something like that. So I was always sort of drawn to those kinds of careers. I think the other thing I, I may have done, and actually what I sort of thought I might do when I started at Muhlenberg was, was teach. So I took some education courses, and I actually took a Calculus two class 
in my first semester at Muhlenberg because I thought I might want to be a high school math teacher. So I think that would be a possible other option. But I got to the end of that math class and I, you know, it was fine. I did well in it. It was Linda McGuire that taught that class, which she was also terrific. But I got to the end of that class and I thought, you know, I really like math with numbers. I don't really like math with letters. And so what it turned out is I actually really like statistics. I didn't really know that that's kind of what all of this was called at the time. And interestingly enough, in my day-to-day work in political science and my research especially, I actually do a lot of statistics. So even though the Calc 2 you know, wasn't wasn't where I ended up going. I didn't end up majoring in math or anything like that. In fact, I don't think I took another math class after that Calc 2 class but I certainly still use math and statistics. So I, I could have imagined being a high school math teacher in, in a different life, for sure. Oh, that's, that, that's very interesting. I mean, I, some of it's having grown up where I did. And, you know, my mom taught elementary school, so I had a lot of, and my aunt taught elementary school, so I had a lot of examples of teachers in my life. And so I think that was part of what, what drew me to that, is it was a career that I kind of understood and I knew. What is the best way a person can spend their time? So I, this is going to be super nerdy, but that's okay. I'm a, I'm a professor. I'm allowed to be nerdy. I think learning new, new things, right? Learning new things, whether that's by reading or whether that's by talking to people who have different experiences than you. Um, I was just, a student contacted me the other day to ask me to write a letter of recommendation for her for a master's program that she's applying for student athlete at Dickinson and you know, just all around great student. And I, I was thinking, I was looking at the master's program that she was applying for, which was about planning and regional and urban design. And I was looking at the curriculum thinking, man, this would be a great program. I would love to take these classes. <laughs> and I realized, I don't have time to take these classes. I can't do this. You know, when I talk to folks and faculty members at the law school in town, the Penn State Dickinson Law School in in Carlisle, and they talk about the classes that they teach, I think, oh, I'd really like to take a couple of law classes. So I think just spending your free time, learning new things, expanding your areas of expertise, just being creative or being inquisitive, being curious about the world, I think is, is absolutely the best way to spend free time. Obviously, you went to a liberal arts school at, at Muhlenberg, and like Muhlenberg, and, and work at one right now at Dickinson. That's uh, that that that's where you want to go to to be able to do stuff like that. So very very much in tune with with, with where you went to school and 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 are now working. Yeah, and I I mean I credit my grandmother a lot for that. She worked at Gettysburg College in the president's office for her most of her career, and she was a, a true believer in the liberal arts because she saw it. She she worked in that environment and saw the change that happened to students. And she's really why I looked at Centennial Conference schools during my college search process. And that's how I ended up at Muhlenberg. So you know, I, I absolutely credit her with the that kind of love of learning. And, and being, she was the one that sort of articulated to me as a high school student, the importance of liberal arts and you know why I might be interested in schools like Muhlenberg. And, and last question, if you could sit down for a meal with any person, uh, present or past, who would it be? So again, like because I, I just like to hear people's stories and, and kind of know where they came from, I would welcome the conversation with a ton of people. I think right now one of the, one of the people that's doing really interesting things, um, particularly in the political world, um, is Michelle Obama. So I think she would be fascinating to sit down and talk with, kind of thinking about what her experience has been in politics up till this point. If she thinks that politics and government are the way to go forward in terms of solving problems or if there are other ways to solve problems, I think she would be a, a really interesting person to sit down and, and chat with. 
All right. Well, uh, Sarah, you know, we'll put out this podcast and uh, maybe we'll we'll tweet it at Michelle Obama. And, uh... She started a podcast during quarantine, too. So, you know, stranger okay. things have happened. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe she'll listen to this episode and say, hey, that's a person I really want to meet. So uh, we'll 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 do our best to make that happen. Um, Sounds good, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to circle back to that first question we asked there about about your favorite quote. I know, and you touched on it earlier today. I I, I know uh, one quote that's really important is just four letters long. Uh, v O T E, right? Vote. You are yes. you are a big big believer in the in the power of voting, and obviously, it's something that you talk to your your students about uh, every week. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I, everybody should participate, and if you've got the option to do so, if you've got the ability to do so, please look up the rules where you are, find out what needs to happen over the next couple of weeks, and and if you're permitted to do so, please please participate in the process. That's the only way that the democracy that the American dem- democratic process works is if we all participate in it. All right, Sarah Nebra, thank you for joining us on the Muhlenberg Mules podcast, and good luck trying to decipher what happens in the next few weeks uh, leading up to Election Day and then after that. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. This was great. The Muhlenberg Mules podcast is a production of the Muhlenberg Office of Athletic Communications with Joe Widener, Zoe Keim, and Marty the Mule. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at mulespodcast at muhlenberg.edu or call our pod line at 484-664-4001 and leave a message. We will answer questions in future episodes. The Muhlenberg Mules podcast is available on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us and recommend us to your friends. For the latest in Muhlenberg College Athletics, please follow us on social media at M-U-H-L underscore S-P-O-R-T-S. Until next week, Go Mules!